Well, in this service, we've already been seeing many, many reasons to rejoice in the Lord. We've got some more in the reading, which is on page 17 of your bulletins. Uh, Revelation 1, 4 through 6 from the majority text. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is coming and from the sevenfold spirit who was before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins with his own blood. Indeed, he made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire to honor you as we uh, seek to understand it, to continue to uh, worship you and to be strengthened through it. We pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There are two kingdoms in competition for every square inch of this planet. There is the kingdom of man, humanistic, and it is uh, empowered by Satan. And there is the redemptive kingdom of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, one leads to bondage, the other one leads to liberty. And there is not going to stop being a conflict between these two kingdoms simply because you get tired of fighting. Uh, and yet I praise God for these verses because they are an encouragement that what God calls us to do, He empowers us to accomplish. But there will be resistance. Verses 4 through 6 contain words that would have been highly offensive to the Roman imperialism of the time, actually would have been considered treasonous words, given the blasphemous claims of Caesar at that time. Now John's going to later on describe some of those blasphemous claims in chapters 13 uh, through 19, but these verses are basically a contradiction to everything that Caesar stood for. Ian Rock's commentary on Romans demonstrates that the phrase grace and peace from God stands in contrast, very sharp contrast, to Rome's repeated claims that Caesar is the source of grace and peace to all peoples. What Rome called grace, gratia, God will later describe as tyranny. It is anything but grace. Rome offered to be gracious to anybody who would unconditionally submit to Caesar's lordship, but that messianic state stood in rebellion and competition to the true messianic kingdom of Jesus. What Rome called peace in, in uh, Revelation 6 through 19 is going to de declare to be the exact opposite of peace. The Pax Romana was anything but peace. In contrast to Caesar, where coins and propaganda constantly proclaimed that he was divine, in fact, they insisted everybody worship him, uh, verse 4 is going to say that there is only one self-existent God, Jehovah God, in verse uh, 4. Against Roman witnesses who testified against Christians and put them to death, Jesus Christ is the witness who will testify against his enemies. And against Caesar who claims to have conquered all the world, Jesus was made to be the ruler over the kings of the, the earth. In contrast to Caesar, who claimed to own all things, actually to even own all the citizens, Jesus says we are his bond slaves that he purchased at the cost of his blood. In contrast to Caesar, who claimed that no kingdom could have any authority if he did not grant that kingdom authority, Jesus made us to be a kingdom without seeking Caesar's permission, by the way. Thank you. Uh, now, we're not going to focus on Rome this morning, but I thought before we began, it would be helpful to know that everything in these wonderful verses here about the kingdom of Christ uh, really was an undermining of Rome. And there's a number of books that show how the book of Revelation as a whole undermined uh, the, the Roman pretensions of that time. But I'm going to be focusing on Christ's kingdom. Principle 21 in your outlines is taken from the second phrase in verse 4, grace and peace to you, and it is a marvelous 
bit of sunshine in the face of the judgment and the warfare and the destruction that are going to be coming in later chapters. But he starts with the pronouncement of grace and peace, and he ends the book with an incredible description of all that that grace and peace has accomplished. And it's a thematic element that ties this book together, and it actually explains the wrath that comes in between. Uh, in one sense, the words grace and peace don't make any sense if you don't understand the judgment of God and the warfare of God against mankind. Grace is undeserved favor. So you don't understand the good news unless you understand the bad news of the later chapters. Every one of us deserves the fiery judgments that God is going to pour out upon uh, people and the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the, the seven bowls of God's wrath and the seven condemnations. Uh, we deserve to be thrown into hell just like the beast and the false prophet are described as being thrown into hell and yet God showed us His grace. We deserve to have the same warfare against us and yet He declared peace to us rather than warfare. So we have the pronouncement of grace and peace and actually the author of peace, the prince of peace, in this whole first chapter and in the last two to three chapters of the book. And um, they're kind of bookends. And the descriptions at the end of the book are a piece so pervasive that it makes planet Earth look much different at the end of the book than the Earth that is being described in between. So you have the pronouncement of grace and peace at the beginning. You've got accomplishments of that grace and peace at the end. And in between, you've got se severe resistance to God's grace and peace in between. Well, who wins? Obviously, the way the book's structured, God's grace and peace win out. The resistance of the world in between is futile. And I, I just love those two uh, terms. Many commentators point out that the Greek word for peace in this book stands as the counterpart to the Old Testament word, uh, Hebrew word shalom. And the Old Testament uh, Septuagint, which was the translation of the Old Testament, uh, this Greek word, eirene, translates shalom over and over again. And since this is a Jewish book to Jewish people using Jewish grammar and vocabulary, uh, the, the people who are reading this, they would have understand the full import of that Hebrew word shalom. Very, very rich word. In fact, if you were to get out a concordance and look up every time that the, the word Hebrew word shalom uh, works, you'd see these kinds of translations. 172 times it is translated as peace, but it's also translated as to be well, health, prosperity, safety. By the way, as I read through these dictionary definitions of the, the word shalom, if you've read much about ancient imperial Rome, you will recognize Rome claims to be the source of every one of those things. It claimed to be the source of, of peace and uh, of uh, uh, wellness and health and prosperity and safety. Anyway, the dictionary goes on, welfare, happiness, favor, to be restored, to be complete, to be whole. So the Old Testament word shalom has a very broad and rich uh, meaning. There are actually 30 different translations for the word that go beyond peace. And one author tried to summarize the various definitions of shalom this way. He said, the various shades of meaning contained in this word all indicate that every blessing, temporal and spiritual, is included in restoring man to that peace with God which was lost by the fall. And I think that's a great, great summary. God's shalom reverses everything that was lost by the fall. Well, so does this book. That's what this book is about, right? It begins by pronouncing God's peace upon His people. By the time you get to the end of the book, you discover descriptions of the fullest and completest dimensions of every definition of that word shalom that you could possibly find. Everything in the curse is reversed. In the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, verse 3 says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So that's the trajectory of this book, the curse of sin being replaced by the eternal shalom that can only come by God's grace. 
And there is an order in these words. It is grace and peace. It's not peace and grace. Uh, I counted 18 times that the word peace and uh, grace occur in the same verse, and it's always grace before peace. Um, the United Nations would love to have peace without grace, but that's impossible. They quote the Bible on swords being turned into plowshares. That's a really an odd thing for them to quote the Bible on that. But they leave out the rest of the verse that talks about Jesus Christ's grace being the only thing that can achieve that. And until we are reconciled to God by His grace, we cannot enjoy any kind of peace. Objective peace out there, subjective peace inside. Um, <clears throat> Rome tried to bring the Pax Romana, the universal peace of Roman's civil government, but God's going to describe that so-called peace in chapters 6 through 19 and say that the only thing that Rome succeeded in bringing is misery, destruction, domination, tyranny, warfare. You want to see a, a beautiful description of statism? Actually, it's a pretty ugly description of statism. Well, read chapters 6 through 19. That is as great a description of the results of statism as you could get. And it's really odd that Rome would describe their brutal warfare and their subjugation of peoples under their iron boot as peace, but they did it all the time. Yes, this is peace. We're bringing a blessing uh, to the world. You know, Orwell's book, 1984, describes the misuse of language, the twisting of the definition of terms by uh, the modern state. Hey, it's not just the modern state. This goes all the way back uh, to ancient Rome in, in doing this. And so Revelation describes Rome's peace as actually producing plagues and the wrath of God and famine and scarcity and tribulation, demonic affliction, judgments that would fall upon those who are outside of Christ. As I mentioned earlier, this book undermines everything statist that Rome stood for and it continues to undermine the messianic state. Well, what about the word grace? One person summarized grace with the acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, in ourselves, apart from Christ, we are described in chapter 3 as being wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. But when we're in Christ, the same passage describes us as being rich, being clothed in beautiful garments, having the blindness of our eyes completely cleansed and healed with that spiritual eye salve. Throughout this book, we realize that outside of Jesus, we are in danger. Inside of Jesus, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not even martyrdom can separate us. There is not a chapter in this book that does not describe God's grace and peace against the backdrop of Satan's counterfeit grace and peace. And the book does a brilliant job of describing the riches that come to us at Christ's expense. For example, the riches of heaven are described in terms that go beyond anything that riches on earth uh, could, you could conceive of. Gold on earth is extremely precious, and yet the entire city of heaven, the entire city, all of the buildings, every part of that city is made of pure gold. Revelation 21, verse 18, and that gold is described as somehow being as clear as glass in the same verse. Obviously, it's not a literal gold that he's talking about. There is no gold on earth that can be like that, but he's using terms, he's using symbols. Remember, this is a book of symbols to try to show us how far the riches of heaven transcends any concept of the riches on earth. In fact, he talks about even the streets of that, of that city are made of pure gold. Another example, real pearls on earth are very rare and costly, and yet every gate of the New Jerusalem is described as being a giant pearl, Revelation 21, verse 21. Well, that's impossible on earth. You don't get 21-foot-tall pearls on earth. And so it's a symbol that's being used, but it is symbols to show the almost incomprehensible riches that God has purchased at the expense of His Son's uh, uh, life. So that's what grace means, God's riches at Christ's expense. And I want you to notice that this grace and peace flows from each person of the Trinity. What is pronounced in chapter 1, what is accomplished by the time you get to the end of the book, could not be accomplished 
without the character and the work of all three persons of the Trinity. So it's worth studying what those are. Uh, verses 4 through 5 are one unit of thought. It says, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is coming and from the sevenfold spirit who was before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now we're going to look at the Trinitarian description in a little bit. But if you think grace cannot accomplish the Christianization of the world that this book talks about, your God is too small. You need to start reading the book of Revelation and get a grander view of the greatness of God, especially chapters 4 and 5. If you think that the clashing of swords cannot be turned into peace, then your God is too small. The God who speaks grace and peace into the kingdom of his people will progressively accomplish it. As Mount states in his commentary, more than a casual greeting, it bestows what it proclaims. So the bookends of grace and peace are not by accident. Now it's true, as we've mentioned before, chapters 2 through 3 describe a pretty messed up uh, and weak church in the first century, but because God's grace and His peace are flowing into that church, He will eventually produce the glorious bride that He describes in this book. And dispensationalists completely miss out on the thematic development of grace and peace that ties this book together when they say chapters 1 through 3 shows God's grace on earth, but there is no more grace on earth after chapters uh, 3. And the reason they say that is because, hey, there's no more church upon planet earth, and God has removed his Holy Spirit uh, from uh, planet uh, earth. I know it may seem very strange, but this is a very common doctrine out there. I'm just going to give you one example. Oliver Green wrote a very popular premillennial commentary, and he said this, the rapture takes place between chapters 3 and 4. The overcomers will be caught up and the masses will be spewed out. It is true that John does not record the facts concerning the rapture, but he still thinks that has to occur between chapters 3 and 4, okay? Now, it's my view that the pre-trib rapture is a myth. When Oliver Green says that John doesn't describe the rapture, but it has to occur between chapters 3 and 4, he is reading into the text something that does not belong there. But it gets worse. He says there will be no grace and no Holy Spirit on the earth after chapter 3. He says after the church is raptured and the Holy Spirit will not be here to restrain the forces of evil, this earth will become a literal hell. The systems of this earth will be committed entirely to the devil. Wow, what a cheery fellow. Um, let me assure you, nothing could be further from the truth. Chapter 5, verse 6, just as one example, talks about the Holy Spirit going throughout the entire earth. He's obviously working after chapter 3. He's going throughout the entire earth. And the book ends by the Holy Spirit and the bride saying, Come. They're inviting people to the living waters of grace. Chapter 7 describes 144,000 Jewish people who become Christians who survived the war that is described in chapters 6 through 19. And chapter 14 says they were redeemed by the Lamb and have God as their Father. Now, if that's not grace, I don't know what grace is. It seems to me that is clearly a description of grace, and yet if you point that out to the dispensationalist, at least the historic kind, third-wave dispensationalist, much better, but to the historic dispensationalist, which there is many of them still around, they will say this, oh, well, that's Jews. And you say, so, what difference does that make? Their answer, their description of how Jewish believers and the church are entirely different bodies. And you cannot claim the promises to the Jews in the Old Testament or the kingdom in the future. The church and Judaism, two totally different bodies is what they say. You realize they've got an entirely different worldview than we do. For sure it is not historic Christianity. And yet most writings today on Revelation are by dispensationalists. So just be careful when you're reading commentaries. And by the way, it's not just Jews. That is just a bad answer. Uh, God's redemptive judgments on the nations in chapters 6 through 7 did indeed convert multitudes 
of Gentiles. Chapter 7 describes a multitude that no man could number who were saved from among the Gentiles. And verse 9 of that chapter describes them as coming, quote, from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Apparently the Holy Spirit's been pretty busy at work uh, on the earth even after chapter 3. Chapter 14, verses 14 through 16, describe an incredible gathering of the saints into the kingdom. And chapters 20 and following show that Christ's kingdom will triumph over all enemies and over every aspect of the curse. So I just want you to be aware there are many commentaries out there that speak of our age as the age of grace. That, that's a theologically faulty concept, as if other ages don't have grace in it. So they speak of our age as the age of grace, and they put a huge division between chapters 1 through 3, which they're willing to apply to us, and the rest of the book, which they put off into the future after the age of grace. And it completely spoils the thematic unity of this book. Well, let's move on to the next principle. Principle 22 can be summarized in these words. The Trinitarian God, verses 4 through 5, is fully capable of moving planet Earth from chapter 1 to chapter 20. And this is a much-needed corrective and encouragement to those who are convinced that the church cannot possibly win the battle. Wayne House and uh, Tommy Ice uh, wrote, quote, God has not given the church a proper dose of grace to Christianize the world. And I've read any number of commentaries that believe that the church will lose, many believing that the church will be entirely exterminated uh, before the second coming. And it's not just dispensationalists. You, you, you probably have read Harold Camping. He said much the same. And I've read many amillennialists who believe that the church will be virtually extinguished before the second coming. That's completely backwards to the way that Revelation is structured. Now let me deal with the Trinity first. Unbelieving commentators will occasionally deny that the Trinity is even being described here. In fact, some think that this is a form of polytheism that is going on. They still hadn't outgrown polytheism and evolved to monotheism is the way they think. In his 1989 commentary, Crodell writes, the idea of seven spirits before God's throne had its origin in Babylonian astral religion. There the sun, the moon, and the five then known planets were worshipped as deities who controlled time in terms of weeks, months, and years. The calendar and the possession of the priests controlled life on earth. Now I think even a child reading this would realize that is ridiculous. They wouldn't be taken in by that. And uh, evangelical commentaries do a great job of showing, no, this is describing the Trinity. In fact, some of them show that the language is absolutely magnificent in helping us to avoid many modern heresies concerning the Trinity. The first phrase refers to God the Father, from Him who is and who was and who is coming. Now despite that phrase, who is coming, this is not a reference to Jesus. Uh, most of the newer commentaries uh, show how this is an incredibly clever way of putting the Hebrew of uh, the I am that I am passage in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 into Greek. And since uh, most of you don't know Hebrew and Greek, I'm not going to be able to convey the absolutely marvelous features in this verse adequately, but I'm going to at least try to give you a little bit of a feel of where, where it's going. Moses Stewart spends two pages of small print on this phrase and demonstrates beyond any doubt this is exactly the way that the Hebrews would have communicated the name Jehovah as being I am that I am, the name that most clearly shows forth God's central doctrine or attribute of aseity. Aseity means that God is totally self-sufficient. If he's totally self-sufficient, he doesn't need anything. So if he doesn't need anything, he's not going to be grasping for things. He's not going to be selfish. Instead, he's always going to be overflowing in giving things to others. And that was true even before there were angels or humans to give things to. Long before there was a world, the Father gave all things, the Scripture says, to the Son and to the Spirit. The Son gave all things to the Father and to the, Son, uh, to the Spirit. And the Spirit gave all things to the Father and to the Son very lovingly. So... Aseity means there is a generous, a constant overflowing of God's superabundant self-sufficiency. 
And God's name, I am, which is the root of Jehovah, encapsulates that marvelous doctrine of aseity. In any case, the Hebrew passage that this translates also shows that God is eternal, unchanging, self-sufficient, and experiencing past, present, and future as an eternal present. Now, that's a big mouthful, theologically, that, that, I, that I'm giving to you there. But uh, Jehovah is the God who has always existed, continues to exist in the present, and will always exist in an eternal present. And no English translation can do justice to this amazing phrase, but the Greek does. There is a heresy out there known as the openness of God theology, sometimes called process theology. Some of you have run across people even here in Omaha who believe in that. They call themselves evangelicals, but they actually worship a different God. And the reason I say it's a different God is the attributes of this God are quite different. They don't believe this God can foreknow the future. He can make good guesses about the future, but because he can't foreknow the future, by the way, it's a kind of hyper-Arminianism. They don't want God to foreknow the future because that means the future is determined, right? And so they deny foreknowledge, but that immediately makes a whole bunch of other blocks fall. And so they say, well, God can make mistakes, and yes, he has indeed made mistakes, and God is always growing in his experience. He's developing in his relationship with you. He's a constantly becoming God. Well, that's a, a heresy, and if John had intended to communicate that heresy, he would have used the Greek word ginomai to communicate that God was evolving. He was in a process of becoming, but John did not. Instead, John uses the present ongoing tense of the verb I am, a me, and the past ongoing tense, which we call in, in Greek grammar the imperfect tense. He used the past ongoing tense of the same verb, I am, and people used to criticize John and say, John must have been a peasant. He didn't know how to use Greek. He, he's always using bad grammar. And we saw last week, no, that's absolutely not the case. John was a Jewish Christian writing to Jewish Christians in Hebrew grammar that they would have understood. And this is a brilliant way of translating Exodus 3, verse 14, in exactly the same way that Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4, translates Exodus 3, verse 14, including the use of that word to come. It's actually a very interesting word. When referring to God in the future, it's interesting that John does not use the future tense of I am to refer to the great I am in the future, and there's a good reason. In Greek, that too would be misconstrued as God becoming or developing. So instead, he used a present participle of to come to indicate that anything future is still in God's present. I mean, I still stand amazed at the cool Greek that is uh, given to us by the Apostle John here. It shows that God experiences past, present, and future all as one. As the creator of time, he stands above time. But there's more. Sweet points out that the use of who is coming adds an element of activity on our behalf, multiple comings throughout history. So there's an overflow of God, not just within the Trinity, but there's an overflow of God to us and to planet Earth. It's His comings that enable this planet Earth to be transformed. But there's more. Commentators point out that just as the Hebrew name of God was undeclinable, and if you know Greek, you're going to just be blown away by this, Hebrew name was undeclinable, John deliberately violated Greek rules to make the Greek of this entire phrase one undeclinable noun. Now again, this makes the, the Greek, the grammar here, to conform to the Hebrew usage for the uh, name I am or of God. And so you, so you can see why I spent so much time last week demonstrating this is a Jewish writer to Jewish Christians using Jewish grammar and just filled with Old Testament uh, phrases as this is right here. Anyway, Moses Stewart worded it, the words following apo are taken together as one indeclinable noun corresponding to and expressive of the Hebrew word Jehovah. But there's more. Um, Zerwick and Grossfiener's grammatical analysis book said, the fact that the whole name is undeclined after a poe adds the impression of immutability to that 
of eternity. Now, I know some of this is a little bit over your heads, but it is about as profound as you could get in communicating perfectly the Hebrew name for God into Greek. Now, why did I spend so much time trying to demonstrate what it is that John's communicating here in the Greek. Well, if this is referring to the self-existent, overflowing, all-powerful, great I am, then there is nothing that's too hard for him to achieve. That's the whole point. No wonder the grace and the peace that he pronounces here accomplish what it does accomplish by the end of the book. He is the great I am. For any need that we might have, he says, hey, I am able to accomplish that. You thirsty? I am the living waters. Are you being assailed by Satan? I am your fortress. I am your strong tower. This phrase is one of the bases on which we can believe the rest of the book. The next phrase is also brilliant. It's a reference to the eternally existing fullness of the Godhead as expressed in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not... Greek Christians immersed in the Hebrew Scriptures, so we don't instantly get the full import of that, uh, that phrase like they would. I need to explain it to you, and so let me try. Uh, first, what about that confusing phrase, the seven spirits? People have wondered, why does he talk about seven spirits? You know, it almost seems to deny the Trinity. In a bit, I'll show why it wouldn't have been confusing to Hebrew Christians at all. Uh, Wilbur Pickering has rightly translated this as, and from the sevenfold spirit who was before his throne. The New King James and a few other versions have, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. But the literal Greek is not in a form that you would expect. Um, it, it, and they, it can't be normal Greek grammar or it would end up being faulty. Instead, the majority text literally says, and from the seven spirits who is singular before the throne. So Pickering is right. It has to be translated sevenfold in order to make sense out of the singular is. It's not bad grammar. It's brilliant Hebraism. The is demonstrates that the spirit is one person. And in chapters 4 and 5, John waits till chapters 4 and 5 to explain what he's talking about here. But in chapters 4 and 5, he further defines the seven spirits, which actually there should be translated as sevenfold spirit as well, as being the seven lamps and the seven eyes of Zechariah chapter 4. Wow, well, knowing that infuses this phrase with huge meaning. Zechariah 4 makes clear that the seven lamps and the seven eyes clearly refer to the one Holy Spirit who has a sevenfold ministry to take Christ's grace and infallibly apply it to the elect and to take Christ's judgments and to infallibly apply those judgments to the non-elect. And so the Spirit stands before the throne to carry out the will of the Father and of the Son in all of the earth and no one can stop Him. That's the import of the first sevenfold passage of the Old Testament. Now, most commentators also find an allusion to Isaiah 11, the only other passage in the Old Testament that has the sevenfold spirit uh, reference being described. In that passage, the Holy Spirit who anoints Jesus has seven characteristics that enable Jesus to start his redemptive kingdom. And as the chapter progresses, the Spirit enables Jesus to carry forth the kingdom so effectively that eventually there will even be reversals to the physical uh, earth, like the wolf dwelling with the lamb and the leopard lying down with a, a, a young goat, and the people living longer, and the knowledge of Jehovah covering the earth as deeply as the waters covering the ocean beds, and all of the Gentiles being converted. That one phrase, and from the sevenfold spirit who is before the throne, would have instantly alerted the Hebrew Christian, ah, he's talking about the two famous Old Testament passages that talk about the sevenfold spirit advancing the kingdom. Well, when you see the Old Testament background with the sevenfold spirit, you suddenly realize it's not just God the Father who was up to the task of taking forth this grace and this peace and transforming planet Earth. The Spirit is fully capable as well. So just as Isaiah 11, one of those uh, uh, sevenfold spirit passages, just as it starts with the sevenfold spirit empowering the Messiah and ends that chapter with 
the total success of the Messiah, the book of Revelation starts with the sevenfold spirit before the throne and ends with the total success of that throne. Then comes the description of the Son in verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's an obvious reference to Jesus. Nobody questions that. But if all grace and peace flows just as much from Jesus as it does from the Father and the Spirit, well, that makes Jesus divine. But if he's a prophet, priest, and king, it makes him human. So here encapsulated in incredibly condensed form, the Apostle Paul gives to us the grand mysteries of the Trinity and of the human divine natures of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the key point that I wanted to make under principle 22 is that the Trinitarian God who is described here is fully capable of taking on the opposition and advancing His grace and peace. We serve an amazing, awesome God. Now let's take a look at principle 23. This book describes Jesus' ongoing work as prophet, priest, and king. We don't have to wait for a future millennium for Jesus to take on these roles. Instead, verse 5 says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now the first phrase refers to Jesus as a prophet. As a prophet... He testifies on behalf of the Father. And the word for witness there, the Greek word is martus, and it's defined by the dictionary as, quote, one who testifies in legal matters. That word highlights the primary office of an Old Testament prophet, uh, that he would bring covenant lawsuits against nations and against uh, churches. And we've already seen in a previous sermon that the whole book of Revelation is a covenant lawsuit. So the question comes, does Jesus continue to testify or to witness against nations today? There are a lot of people say no. We say, well, from the text, obviously, clearly yes. Though this book primarily highlights one example of his being a witness against Rome and against Israel, this is his name. So it does not limit the scope of his prophetic work. He continues for all time to bear the title of faithful witness. And Beale and Carson point out that the three descriptions of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, the phraseology that is used here comes from Psalm 89, and that psalm describes his witnessing work as continuing forever as long as the moon shall last. So no nation can escape from his covenant lawsuit as long as Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. That means America and other nations are in just as much jeopardy and danger of the judgments that are listed in this book as ancient Rome and Israel were. Why? Because he is always a faithful witness. And the next phrase shows the culmination of Christ's work as a priest. It calls him the firstborn from among the dead. Now, in the book of Numbers, especially the first few chapters, it says that the Levitical priests took over the role of the firstborn. So the word firstborn is the first hint that this is referring to Jesus' priestly office. But there is more that highlights his priesthood. In Romans, Paul asserts that Christ's entire work of redemption was accepted by God when he raised him from the dead. His resurrection demonstrated forever that his redemption was successful and that God had ushered in the age when he would begin to make all things new. Things in heaven, things on earth. That's all the work of Jesus as a priest. On says this about the word firstborn. This word implies, at least the first part of the firstborn, this word implies that while Jesus is the first to have conquered death, he is also not the last, but provides the precedent for the subsequent resurrection of believers who have died. And as he, Osborne, and others have pointed out, that resurrection was the first step in the inauguration of the new creation. So you could say, okay, fine, he was a priest while he was here on earth. He'll be a priest when he resurrects our body. What, what about in between? Well, in between, he is also continuing in his priestly work just like in his prophetic work. Psalm 110 declares him to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Psalm 2 declares that when Jesus was begotten from the dead, 
he could begin to intercede on behalf of the nations. It says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So he's saying his priesthood is going to be successful universally across this planet. And Hebrews makes a big deal about the fact Jesus has to remain a priest forever. He has to sit at the Father's right hand and be interceding. How long? It says until all enemies are put under his feet. So you can see how his priesthood, his, uh, his prophetic office, his priestly office, and his kingly office all hang together. His prophetic office tears down all opposition, calls people to a standard. His priestly reclaims and builds up, and his kingship rules over. And of course, that's the third affirmation in this verse, that Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now that is such a clear affirmation that Jesus is a king right now that it astonishes me that there are so many commentaries that deny that. Since dispensationalists deny that we are in the kingdom, they often deny that Jesus can be ruling in any sense right now. One dispensational premillennial commentary I have says of this phrase, he will be the prince of the kings in the sweet by and by. But the text doesn't say he will be the ruler over the kings of the earth. That is his current title and occupation. And yet dispensational commentary after commentary insists that he has to be referring to something 2,000 years yet future. John Wolverd, for example, says, he is not exercising this right over the kings of the earth now. He has to say that in order to maintain his false system. How do we settle these kinds of debates? Well, you do so in several ways. The first is by context. If grace and peace is currently coming from the ruler of the kings of the earth, you would expect he's currently a ruler. How could grace and peace flow from an office that does not yet exist? Second, if the next verse affirms, as it does, that he has already made us to be kings and priests, and actually, literally, it's made us to be a kingdom and priests, that would imply a current kingship. A non-king can hardly confer or bestow a kingdom. Thirdly, you look at the Old Testament background that's being alluded to, and several commentators have pointed out, just as I did already, that Psalm 89, this cluster of phrases all comes from Psalm 89, which clearly ties the prophetic, priestly, and kingly offices to our present time period. Uh, Psalm 89, verse 27, makes him a king at the time that he is the firstborn from the dead. <clears throat> psalm 110, probably the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, does the same, and it clearly ties his priestly office and his kingly office tightly together by saying he is a priest king forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So that psalm does not divide the two offices as the dispensationalists do, and yet they will object, hey, if that's true, if Jesus currently has a king, kingdom, if he currently is reigning as king, how come we see so much persecution of believers around the world? And the answer is simple. We see persecution because that's exactly what the Old Testament promised would happen when the Messiah would set up his kingdom. It promised that the kingdom would start small and gradually grow against opposition. It promised that it would uh, start with enemies and continue until all enemies were put under his feet. For example, Psalm 110 says, Jehovah said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Notice that phrase, rule in the midst of your enemies. Psalm 110 prophesied that enemies would clearly be around for a long time after Messiah sat upon his throne and started his kingdom. We would expect that. Psalm 2 describes the first century kings plotting against the Messiah, against Christ, resisting his reign, trying to overthrow his laws, trying to cast off his cords from them. In fact, they would do that so much initially, that it would make the Father and the Son angry, and God, it says, quote, shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure, verse 5. Well, that's exactly what chapters 6 through 19 of Revelation are doing. It is God vexing nations that are resisting Christ's rule, and he is speaking against them in his deep displeasure. 
The next verses in Psalm 2 speak of the Son gradually receiving all nations and all ends of the earth as His inheritance. So here, here's the point. As His prophetic office goes forth, His priestly office goes forth, and His kingly office expands. But the last verses of that psalm form the same warning that Revelation gives to rulers. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. So having enemies resisting Christ in chapters 6 through 19 is not proof that the kingdom hasn't come. That's exactly what was prophesied would happen with the kingdom. But he does pronounce a blessing upon kings who submit unconditionally to Christ's rule. Daniel 7 says that Jesus would become king when? When he ascends to the right hand of the Father and he sits at the right hand of the Father. So the kingdom is given to him legally even though the bestial kingdoms, it says, will continue to survive for a period and a time. Jesus said at his ascension, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. That's just like with Joshua. Joshua was given the land of Canaan. And he said, go therefore and conquer it for me. Okay, that's, that's the way it works. So the 23rd principle for interpreting this book is that we must see Jesus as currently advancing his kingdom through his prophetic, priestly, and kingly offices. And on my um, chart of Revelation, I'm going to later be showing how each of these offices is introduced, and it really forms a kind of a, a bit of the structure uh, of the book. Now, all of this leads to a doxology on the part of the Apostle John. And this doxology itself portrays the gradual advancement of redemption and the kingdom. It does not come in all at once like the premillennialists insist. It happens over a span of time. Starting to read in the middle of verse 5, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins with his own blood, indeed, he made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. How does Christ make all things new? Well, he starts by changes that he makes in us individually. To him who loved us, washed us from our sins with his own blood. That's where redemption starts, with the individual. But this itself constitutes an invasion of the heavenly kingdom to the rest of the earth. Every time a person gets converted, the kingdom of heaven has, has expanded further upon planet earth. So the text says, indeed, he made us a kingdom. The people of God themselves constitute a corporate kingdom. And where are they living? They're not living in heaven. They're living on earth. Kingdom of heaven has invaded the earth. And this kingdom was not intended to be static. He made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Now, priests are always interceding on behalf of others. So if the us is all believers, and all believers are reconciling even more people to God, well, automatically, we're talking about the spread of the kingdom, right? Now, some people insist that the kingdom of Christ does not spread. It is what it is. He's always been sovereign over all things in planet Earth. And so they insist we cannot sing, Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, like we're going to be singing in a few minutes. But that is, B.B. Warfield, I think, is brilliantly displayed uh, through a marshalling of many, many texts why that is ignoring the fact that there is a distinction between God's eternal kingdom that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all rule over, that's never had a beginning, never will have an end, and Christ's mediatorial kingdom or his kingdom of redemption that had a start. That started at his ascension, and it's going to have an end. He'll hand over the kingdom to the Father. And Isaiah 9 says, of the increase of this kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. Of course it extends. Of course it increases. And the goal of everything in the kingdom is for the advancement of God's glory and dominion. Verse 6 ends by saying, To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. But those four phrases we've just gone through, that we've just covered, show that Christ has willed to advance his kingdom, not apart from us, but through us, weak as we may be. Now, if, as premillennialists claim, we are priests now, but we are not yet kings, we're not kings until the second coming, then we don't have the faith needed to change the world, to overcome Satan, to begin to subdue all things to Christ. But Ephesians 2, verse 6 says, no, 
we have indeed been raised up together with Christ. We have indeed been seated, seated together with Christ on his throne. And God expects us to have the faith to rule as kings from our position in Christ. Just as one brief example, Revelation 2, verses 26 through 27, says that overcomers have the ability to rule over nations. In fact, they have the ability to take the rod from Christ's hand and to smash the nations that are rebelling against Christ with that rod. And I won't get into the whole meaning of that, but it's an awesome promise that is way too neglected by the church. If the church would unite in expecting what God has promised and attempting what God has promised, we would see astounding things happening upon planet Earth. So let me end the sermon by reading verses 4 through 6 one more time. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is coming, and from the sevenfold spirit who is before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins with his own blood. Indeed, he made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for calling us to a task that is way beyond us way beyond us, a task to convert this world, to subdue every area, square inch of this world to King Jesus. Even in the things that we're gifted in, we realize, Father, in ourselves, we cannot adequately do our jobs. Uh, whether it's inside our houses or outside of our houses, we cannot adequately do them unless we are filled with your Holy Spirit. And so we pray you would fill us, and Jesus, that you would rule your reign through us, and, uh, and, Father, that you would cause your grace to abound uh, in us. Uh, we love you. We love your kingdom. And it is our desire to see your kingdom extended to the ends of the earth. And I pray that you would not only uh, open up the eyes of our understanding to see how it is done, but that you would strengthen us to that end. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.